If you would, a gift. Think about a gift that someone gave you that left you speechless. Um, I don't know if you've ever received a gift uh, that left you speechless, but it's the type of gift where um, it was so overwhelming you almost didn't know what to say. And it wasn't because it was some fancy thing. It could just been the thought behind the gift, the timing of the gift, uh, but a gift that you were given that left you speechless. Uh, at the time, the gift that I was thinking about for myself um, was I was uh, a youth pastor and uh, I was getting ready to leave the church where I was serving as youth pastor to move to Chicago uh, with my wife uh, and my dog Meshach at the time. There was no children involved. And um, uh, one of my high school students that I had really invested in for about four years, we spent a lot of time together, uh, came up to me uh, a few weeks before I was getting ready to leave, and he handed me an envelope. And this was a kid who was about 17 years old, uh, 16, 17, he was a junior in high school at the time, and um, said, I, I just, I, I wanted to give you this. And I was like, what, what is it? Opened it up, and it was a $1,000 check. Now, this is from a 16, 17-year-old kid. Um, now, $1,000 to maybe some of you is, is not much, but think about when you were 16, 17 years old, if you had $1,000 that you actually had 1000 and were willing it to give it freely to someone else. I remember looking at this check, thinking to myself, I I cannot fathom why you are giving me this check. And he was like, I'm just really excited for you, and uh, I just want to let you know I love you. And so I'm like, wow. And I cried at the time as well. Um, at least I'm consistent. Um, but I just, it left me speechless. I, I, I had nothing to say to this 16-year-old kid standing in front of me who had pulled overtime working at CVS just so he could give me extra money to help support me in seminary. So I don't know if you have thought of a gift, but... Hopefully, you've at least had one moment in time where someone gave you a gift that just left you speechless. Now, I want you to think about a time in your journey with God. And I say journey with God because all of us here today in a very different place. Some of us are still trying to figure out and understand who God is and how we relate to God. And some of us have figured out how to have a relationship with God through Christ and have been walking with God for years. I wanted to ask the question of, in your journey with God, wherever you are on that spectrum, um, have you ever received a gift or has anything happened in your relationship with God that left you speechless? God did something, provided for you, showed up in a powerful, a unique uh, way where it just left you speechless. You didn't know what to say in regards to what God had done or how he had showed up, how he had provided. Um, I think God actually does that a lot more than we recognize. Uh, we'd have a lot more of those moments. Um, but has that, can you recall any moment in time where God actually left you speechless with a gift that he had given you or showed something to you or how he had led you or provided for you? Uh, as I was thinking about that for myself, I feel like I'm actually living in that moment right now because uh, as I consider what God's doing in my life, as I consider what God's doing in, this, in the life of this church, there are times where I'm just speechless. I don't know what to say. Um, and why I feel speechless is because I feel like we as a church, and me, per I feel like we're on, on, on the verge of just something really unique and powerful that God wants to do in our midst. And why I get left speechless is because I can't believe I get to even see it, nonetheless be part of it, not be, even be around it. Paul has been, we're at the very end of Romans chapter 8, and 
Paul asks a very rhetorical question. Actually, the verses we're looking at, Paul is filled with rhetorical questions. And the question that Paul asks, and this is actually in Romans 8, verse 31, he just simply says, what then shall we say in response to this? What then shall we say in response to this? Now, the obvious question is, what is the this that Paul is referring to? The this that Paul is referring to is everything that he has talked about thus far leading up to this section in Romans 8. So everything that he has talked about, spoken of, revealed, starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And if you consider all of the this, that because we were sinners, we were separated, alienated from God. Just, we were, God was justified to punish those who were sinful. But God, in his love for us, decided to reveal a righteousness from heaven that those who would have faith in Jesus Christ, the revealed righteousness of God, would no longer be separated from God, but would be actually declared justified. So that's one aspect that we have been declared justified, that as soon as we enter into relationship with God, he begins to sanctify I mean, he begins to take us where we are and mold us and shape us so that we look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, not in out, outward attributes, but in our inward character. And then the promise comes that uh, those who have been justified and are being sanctified uh, will be glorified, that those who have faith in Christ will have heaven as a home, that when we die, we have hope that it doesn't end there. We have hope that we have heaven, that God will glorify us. So in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1, all the way to where we are in chapter 8, verse 30, the love of God has been revealed, the grace of God has been revealed, that we can have hope, that we can have mercy, the forgiveness of sins, that we can have the Spirit of God residing, dwelling in us, no longer separated from God, but draw that we've been drawn close to God. That's just a highlight reel of what the this is. So Paul's question What do you say in response to all of that? In light of everything that God has done, shown, and revealed so far in the first eight chapters of Romans, what do you say? Once separated, but now we can have a relationship with God. Forgiven. We have hope. We have peace with God. The Spirit of God. We can be called sons and daughters of God. What do you say in response to all of this? Well, one response could be, That's pretty cool. (laughs) Go me? Go God? One response could just be that. One response could honestly just be, well, I'll have to consider that some more. I'll have to look at some of the finer points of what we're talking about in terms of the this. What do you say to all of what Paul has revealed, to all of what God has done for us? What do you you say to that? And I think the section that we're going to look at, I'm not sure that Paul is actually looking for a verbal affirmation or a verbal response. So if you didn't have one, that's okay. Because I don't think what Paul is looking for from us is words. What I think Paul is, how he wants us to answer this question is a conviction that you and I would have confidence, that we would have certainty, that we would have a, to the core of who we are, a deep level conviction 
of this one transformational truth. If God has done all of that, then my conclusion in all of this, I am concluding this, I am convinced of this, I am certain of this, I have unshakable confidence in this. And it's this, that God must be for me. If God has done all of that, justified and sanctified and is glorified, if God is his, his love, his peace, his forgiveness, the spirit, I mean, if he's done all of that, my one conclusion that Paul wants us to have, if he's done all of that, then we have to have this confidence that God must be for you, that God must be for us. He says this in 831, the rest of the verse, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? As you sit here today, not as you were yesterday or not as you think you'll be tomorrow, but in this moment right now, would you say that God is for you? Do you believe, heart of hearts, you're a deep level conviction? Like nothing, you're, this is what you're convinced of more than anything else in this world. As you sit here right now, do you have that confidence, that certainty, that conviction that you could say, my God is for me? I think most people would say, that sounds good, but almost too good to be true. And I think as we consider just this one verse, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's conclusion is God's for you. God is absolutely for you. But there's something in us that says, ah, I'm, I'm not certain that actually God is for me. And I think one of, I'll give you three reasons why I think we lack the confidence or the certainty. And one would just be this, our current situation. It doesn't seem like God is for me considering my present pain or suffering. So as we look at our current situation, whatever that situation might be, it just could be a season of just indifference, a season of waiting, a season of uncertainty, a season of pain or suffering. It doesn't feel like God is actually for me because my present pain or my present suffering is screaming out, God is actually working against me. Jerry Bridges, uh, an author I often quote, uh, said this in response to our current situation uh, of pain and suffering. For the believer, meaning a Christian, all pain has meaning. All adversity is profitable. There is no question that adversity is difficult. It usually takes us by surprise and seems to strike where we are most vulnerable. To us, it often appears completely senseless and irrational. But to God, none of it is either senseless or irrational. He has a purpose in every pain he brings or allows in our lives. We can be sure that in some way he intends it for our profit and his glory. One reason why we think God is against us is because of our present situation, whether it be pain or suffering, some form of distress, uncertainty. And what I have seen and experienced is, no, pain and suffering is God's doing something in my life. He's not against me. He's actually working for me. I think a second reason is our uncertain future. So not only our present current situation, but when we look forward and we look out to the future, as it were, it doesn't seem like God is for me because when I look forward, all I see is an 
older version of the same person. Meaning my current situation, none of this just seems redeemable. None of this seems like it's ever going to get better. So when I consider life a year from now, five years from now, I'm just going to look like an older version of myself in the mirror, but I will be no different myself. So it doesn't feel like God's for me because I just feel like I haven't matured. I haven't grown. I haven't changed. I've been doing the same thing, the same person for the last how many ever years? I like how D.L. Moody said in response, some people go back into the past and rake up all of the troubles they ever had, and then they look into the future and anticipate that they will have still more trouble, and then they go reeling and staggering all through life. We just take all of the stuff, and rather than allowing God to redeem all of those things for our good, for accomplish his purpose, that he would be glorified, we just carry bags and bags and bags with us into tomorrow, into next week. So it doesn't feel like God's for me. And I think a third reason that we don't feel like God is for us is our present performance. There is no way that God could be for, God could be for me considering my current, my, my current stats, as it were. Because the way I'm playing the game, it's really not that good. There's no way that God could look at my current performance because I've got a lot of sin. I've got a lot of unfaithfulness. I've been disobedient over here. I've been lying over here. I've been doing all sorts of things. And so we look at our current performance, as it were, and we say there's no way that God could possibly be for me. I think this is one, if you're a Christian, this is one of the hardest truths to reconcile in your heart and mind, that there is nothing that you could do that would make God more for you, and there is nothing that you could do that would make God less for you. God being for you has nothing to do with your current performance. You don't read your Bible one day, and and then God all of a sudden be like, I like you more than I liked you about 10 minutes ago. Or you don't give money or serve or... And God, oh, okay, well now I, you're more favorable to me. I enjoy looking at you more now than I did 10 minutes ago. I think this is so hard for us to grasp that our performance has nothing to do with why God is for us. And if you could grasp that truth, I really believe it would radically reshape how we live. That our performance does not merit or demerit God's favor or God being for you uh, in your life. Free from living in fear that you've lost favor with God and free from living pridefully thinking that an impressive spiritual resume makes him more favorable towards you. Because if you're doing the performance thing, you live in fear. I didn't do enough. And if you're living the performance thing, you might actually pride yourself on how much you've done and God somehow is impressed. Is God for you? Our current situation and uncertain future or our past or present performance often dictates to us, no, there's no way that God could be for us. The truth that Paul wants Christians to have an absolute 100% unshakable confidence in is that God is absolutely for you. Doesn't matter your situation Uh, pain or suffering, doesn't matter your future, and it certainly doesn't matter your performance. God is for you, and we'll unpack 
why. Paul actually gives four reasons why we can have a confidence that God is absolutely for you. And I just, I'll stop here and I just ask the question again. Do you honestly believe that God's for you? I mean, there are people here who have been walking with Jesus for 20 years, 30 years, and they would have a hard time raising their hand because I'm about 95% certain that God's for me. Well, I'll tell you this, you're either 0% or 100%. There's no middle ground here with God. It, doesn't, it would be illogical to think that you can have 50% assurance because there's, that's, you're injecting yourself into your situation, your future, or your performance. God is either for you or he's not. And if you're a Christian, Paul wants you to know, have 100% confidence that he is for you. Here are four reasons why that you can leave this place knowing this is why God is for me. Because your present situation of pain and suffering, your future or your performance will dictate and tell you, no, God's not for you because of this and this and this. But Paul, the Bible wants you to know, no, because of these things, you can have unshakable confidence that God's for you. Number one, reason number one that we can have confidence that God is for us is because God gave his one and only son for you. I could just, Paul could actually stop right there. <laughs> I can have 100% assurance that God is for me when I consider what, what Jesus did, when God gave his son. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I want you to think about this for a minute. God did not spare his own son. Now consider what that really means. He didn't spare his son from being denied, doubted, betrayed, spat upon, mocked, falsely accused, beaten, bloodied, nailed to a cross, and taken to a grave. He knew that that would happen, and he did not spare his own son from what the son went through. So I don't want us just to walk away saying, well, he didn't spare. I want you to know what he chose not to spare his son, his son Jesus from. So the question is, well, why didn't he spare his son? Because he wanted to spare you. Because if he didn't send his son, then we would be standing in that place, condemned before God, lost in our sin. So God did not spare his own son so that you and I would be spared. Why is God for me? Well, I just, because of Jesus. He sent his son. And I like how Paul is arguing here from the greater to the lesser, meaning if God is willing to do the most difficult thing, willing to pay the most infinite price, then certainly he would be willing and more than able to provide less of a mercy or less of a blessing. I think there are many people who live under kind of the, the pretense that, well, God's holding out on me. You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever thought that? God's just holding out on me. 
And we often say that God's holding out on me because we're like little kids with our parents. They don't give us what we want when we want, so we can, the kid complains, well, that's bad parenting. If I gave my children everything that they want when they wanted it, would you consider me to be a really good parent? No. I don't think anyone would peg me as a good parent because I just give in to what my kids want when they want it. Because a lot of the things they want would lead to their, their destruction. They would be hurt. And so as a good parent, you protect your children and you give them what they need. And you give them what they need when they need it. So a lot of us think, well, God's holding out on me because he's not giving me what I want when I want it. But the reality is, God gives you great, if he gave his son the greater, if he gave his son for us, why would we ever think that God would ever hold out anything else from us? There's nothing more that he could give us that would be greater than his son. And if he already did that, then can't we have confidence that God would give us generously and graciously all things when we need those things? So a question for you, if God gives generously and graciously, what does he need most right now from God? Write it down. Not what you want, but what you need. And let's be honest, most of us don't know what we need, so we need to go and ask God, what is it I need most? God, maybe it's just perseverance. God, maybe it's just patience. Maybe it's just perspective. God, maybe it's just grace, more grace so that I can be gracious. God, more love so that I can be loving. What is it that you need from God right now? I just want you to know, if God gave his son, how could he not give us all things? Because there's nothing greater than the son. So really the question is, are we asking, are we going to God saying, God, as best as I can sense, this is my need. Would you meet this need? And if I'm confused that it's actually a want, then correct me. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Reason number one why you can have confidence, why I can have confidence that God is for you is because he gave us his son. The second reason why we can have confidence that God is for us, for you, for me, is because God has justified us. God's justified you. I mean, he's declared you righteous. Remember, this is in the context. If you're a Christian, and I, not everyone here is a Christian. Not everyone here has made that decision to confess Jesus as God's son, my savior. So Paul is speaking He wants Christians to have confidence that God's for you. Because of his son, second reason, because God has justified. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Think for a minute, as a Christian, what kind of things do you get charged or accused of? What are some of the things in your time, whether you've been walking with God for a week, a month, or years, What are some of the accusations that come your way? I'm not good enough. Uh, Spiritually, I'm not good enough. I'm a hypocrite. I'm weak. Christianity is just a crutch. I'm mindless, closed-minded. I'm arrogant. The list could go on and on 
of the different things that we get charged with or accused of. Where do those accusations, by the way, come from? Well, they come from me. How often do you accuse yourself of, I'm not this, I'm not that, and we bring an accusation on ourselves? The accusation often can come just from other people. And the accusation can actually come from what the Bible refers to as the accuser, meaning Satan, the enemy of God, an angel that wanted to be God and was thrown out of heaven. So Paul is not trying to say that accusations will never come, but he's saying, what does it matter? So what if there is an accusation or a charge against you, as it were? It doesn't matter because you are already have been declared justified. Those whom God has chosen, meaning our standing with God, we've been completely, as a Christian, justified. There's nothing that anyone could ever say against you. Because if God doesn't accuse you, then what is an accusation from you, someone else, or Satan himself? It has absolutely no merit or foundation. Now, I think most of us would say, well, I like that I've been justified before God, but this is our tension. I like that I've been justified by God, but it still feels pretty nice to be justified in front of other people. And so we live and we do things in order to get either the approval or the validation, as it were, from other people. It's not enough in my life to say, God has declared me completely just. Because of Christ, I'm completely righteous. There's still something in us that says, that's good, but I, I want those around me. I want those that I live with or work with or play with or eat with or hang out with. I want those people to justify or validate me. If that's you, and I'm going to venture to say there's a lot of people kind of in that category, I think one thing you'd have to admit, it's a pretty exhausting lifestyle running around always seeking and hoping that others will validate you. It's just tiring, always wondering what someone else might think of you and hoping that they will validate you, give you some sense of meaning or, or purpose or that they will justify you. It's an exhausting way to live. I think secondly, if that's you and you're kind of stuck in that cycle of it's nice that I'm justified by God, but I really want to be validated by other people. It's not only tiring, I honestly believe that's, it's, a, it's a huge affront to God. Because the message we communicate to God is, yeah, your justification is good, but it's not enough. So I'm going to seek being justified by others by doing whatever. How do you break free from that cycle? How do you break free from the cycle of wanting everyone else to justify you, to validate you, have a sense of worth. Because if God's justification in your life is not enough and you're still seeking it, how do you break free from that? And I think I'll give you two quick ones. Number one, realize that you won't get from others something God has already given you in Christ. No one could ever give you something that God has already given you in Christ. So what you're looking for or seeking or hungry for is found alone in Jesus. That's it. If you're looking to be validated or justified by something or someone other than Jesus, you'll never find it. You'll never find it. 
But when you come to Christ, you realize I've been completely justified, declared righteous as if I'd never even sinned. I think the second thing, and this will be a more challenging one, is there's got to come a point where you just die to yourself. (laughs) You're not seeking any longer from others what God has already graciously given you, but there comes a point where you just, you know, I die to myself. Others' opinions and ideas and validate, it just doesn't really matter that much anymore. George Mueller, uh, a pastor, uh, author, and uh, really a phenomenal godly man said this, there was a day when I died, died to self, my opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren or friends, and since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. When I came across that uh, in reading this past week, it just really resonated. You got to lay that stuff down. Like if you're still pursuing being validated, the approval of those around you, it's tiring, it's an affront to God, and ultimately, God's already given you all of that in Christ. Reason number three, that you can have confidence that God's for you. I mean rock-solid, unshakable confidence that God's for you. Number one was because of God gave His Son. Number two is because God has justified you. And number three, because God does not condemn us. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Goes on, Christ Jesus who died, more than that was who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The third reason I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for me is because Jesus, the one who could condemn, does not condemn. I want to ask this question, as a Christian, is it possible that God would ever condemn you for anything? As a Christian, you've put, placed your faith, trust in Jesus, as God's Son, as your Savior. Is it possible that there would be a point in time moving forward now that God could condemn you of something? Say some of you went out this past weekend and sinned like it was your full-time job. You were trying to put in overtime hours, actually. Is it possible that God would look at what you did this past weekend and condemn you? Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that there won't be consequences for the things and the decisions and the choices you made. There will be consequences for sin. I'm asking the question, is it possible that God would condemn you in light of what you've just done this past weekend? If you answer yes that it is possible that God would condemn me for what I've done, you don't understand fully yet what Christ has done. I would look at you and say, if you sinned this past weekend like it was your full-time job trying to get in overtime, I would want you to know that if you are a Christian, there are consequences for that, but you are not a condemned man or a condemned woman. Why? Why aren't you condemned? Well, because Jesus was condemned for you. There is no more condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, now, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's no more condemnation. 
Why? Because Christ stood condemned for you. So even if your past weekend of working with sin, even if that happened, God is still for you and you are not condemned. I want to be clear, there are consequences for sin and the consequences will vary. If I went out and cheated on my wife this weekend, there would be consequences in my marriage. I don't think I need to convince you of that. But I would not be condemned by God for something that I've done because Jesus stood in my place and was condemned. So now and forever, I would never be condemned again. I think one of the reasons that's really hard for us is there's no way, there's something in my flesh, as it were, that, no, not that. There's no way that God, he would, of course, condemn that behavior or this behavior or that attitude or if you really knew what I did this past weekend, if you really knew where I went this past weekend, if you understand what Jesus has done, then you have absolute assurance that there is nothing that you could do now moving forward where God would condemn you. Now, the obvious question is, well, sweet, that's great news. Why don't I just go sin like it's my job every single day? Well, you could, but you'd be miserable. And I think secondly, as Paul answers this question, he says in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? It's a great question. Well, why don't I just go sin and give God more of an opportunity to forgive me? If he's so good at forgiveness, then let me just give him some more opportunities to forgive me. Paul's response, by no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? When I'm sinning, as it were, making decisions that are just blatantly disobedient to what God has for me and what God would have me do, I'm living as one, I'm living as if I'm not that person. I've taken on a new role and a new identity because I die to that. So anytime I'm making those decisions, I'm re- resurrecting, as it were, my old sinful man. So no, there is no condemnation, but that's not a license for us to go do whatever we want to do. And for those of you who are doing that right now, my challenge, my charge, and I would want you to hear this. If that's you, your mentality is I can just go sin as much as I want because God doesn't care. You have no idea what Jesus did for you on the cross. No idea. Every time that I'm willfully and knowingly choosing to go out and just sin, it's a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross. You have no idea what he did. Charles Spurgeon, who was just known for saying some pretty heavy-handed things, said this, I believe the man who is not willing to submit to the electing love and sovereign grace of God has great reason to question whether he is a Christian at all, for the spirit that kicks against that is the spirit of the unhumbled, unrenewed heart. So the person who just goes out and does not repent of sin, but just repeats his sin again and again and again. Do you really get the cross? And have you actually accepted the work of what Christ did on the cross for you? Because when you do, your heart is humbled and your spirit is renewed. And in verse uh, 34, um, it says, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Never really noticed this in Romans 8 uh, until actually this past week when I was really looking at these verses. And I got this picture of not only does Jesus not condemn me, 
He's actually interceding for me, meaning Jesus is praying for me. And so I started to wonder, I wonder what Jesus is actually praying for me. What is, if Jesus is interceding with the Father right now for you, what do you think Jesus is praying for you for? He doesn't condemn you. He's actually interceding, praying for you. And what came to mind of what Jesus is praying for each of us was what he prayed in his, his prayer in John 17. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. The prayers that God is praying, that Jesus is praying, interceding, God, protect them. Protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the way of sin. Protect them from the destruction of sin. God, would you sanctify Michael Davis so that he looks more and more like me in character every day? I don't know about you, but when I read that, I was like, I want to be an answer to Jesus' prayer. I want to live in such a way where my life is actually resembling a life of answered prayer because Jesus is praying for my protection and Jesus is praying that I would be sanctified. You can have complete confidence that God is for you. Well, because he gave his son Jesus for you, he's justified you, and you do not stand condemned. And the very last one, reason number four, is because nothing would ever separate us from the love that Christ has for us. These are some great verses in the very last part of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a great question. Paul thinking to himself as he's writing, who could ever possibly separate me from the love that God has for me? And he goes off and he lists, shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Could any of these, and by the way, that's a list of everything that Paul actually had gone through. If you read in 2 Corinthians 12, he actually lists out the different ways and troubles and hardships. That's at least seven of those Paul went through. He quotes uh, Psalm 44, verse 22, and he says, As is it written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he goes back in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I feel like Paul, as he's writing these words, led by the Spirit, is getting more and more excited. He's, let me just, nothing in all of creation could ever possibly separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ. He couldn't think of anything in space or time, in death or life. He couldn't think of one thing that would ever separate us from the love that God has for you. Why can I be convinced that God is for me, why God is for you? It's because there's nothing, nothing in all of creation that could ever separate you from God's love. So the question, do you believe that? Do you believe as you're sitting here today that there is nothing that would ever separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ? Do you believe that there's anything I think, I don't know if this is the number one thing, but when just an ounce of pain shows up in our life, 
Well, God, I thought you loved me. What's this? <laughs> What's, you said no. I, God, I thought you loved me. And so we translate pain or suffering, trials or hardships as, well, clearly God must not love me because he's allowing these things to happen in my life. Paul's perspective on just pain and suffering, trials and hardships did not lead him to question the love of God in his life. It actually solidified the love of God in his life. Did you notice how he quoted in uh, Psalm 44, 22, for your sake, God, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So that's Paul's way of saying, God, because of you, because of my relationship with you, I'm like a sheep who's getting slaughtered every which way. And rather than his conclusion being, well, clearly I've done something to separate myself from the protecting love of God, Paul digs his heels in and says, you know what? I am a sheep to be slaughtered, but as he says in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, sheep are not smart animals and they're not tough animals. But the way that Paul talks about this is these sheep who are loved by God can actually become warrior sheep. How is it possible that a not so smart animal and certainly not such a tough animal could ever be a warrior sheep? Do you know why? Because of the love of Christ. So my pain toils troubles, hardships, whatever they might be, do not separate me from the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that helps me to get through those times of trouble, suffering, pain, confusion, hurt, wounding. That's Paul's conclusion is all of these things that are happening around me, it's only because of the love of Christ that I have and have received that I can even get through any of these and nonetheless get through them. I'm conquering them. I love that picture of a warrior sheep. If you have the love of Christ, you are a Christian, you have the love of Christ, never to be separated from that, the message to you is no matter what happens in your life, it will be the love of Christ at work in you that makes you a conqueror, a warrior sheep. Now, this doesn't mean we go out and invite suffering and we pursue it, but I know when it comes into my life, my thought is, oh, I thought God loved me. Clearly, he doesn't. When it happens, when it comes, my response is, I am so thankful that even this will not separate me from the love of Christ. And it's the love of Christ that's going to get me through this as a conqueror, as a warrior sheep. Do you believe that there is nothing that would ever separate you from the love of that Christ has for you. Paul says there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing that would ever separate you. If nothing else, I hope that brings you incredible hope and assurance that you're safe with God. So many people pursue that type of love from women or from men in relationships, pursue that type of love in our careers, in the material things that we can get, and it's right here from God for you in Christ. 
four reasons why each of us can have absolute, unshakable confidence, a conviction that God's for you because he gave you, me, his son. Reason number two is because God's justified you, declared you absolutely righteous. Number three, because God does not condemn. Jesus stood condemned for you. And number four, it's because there's nothing in this life that would ever separate you from how God feels about you, and he absolutely loves you. Finish with this question. So what? (laughs) Why does this matter? Why does it matter that God is for me? You could walk away saying, yeah, there was a case that was made this morning from a few verses in the eighth chapter of Romans that God is for me. You could probably recite some of those reasons as well. But I asked you a question at the very beginning. Do you really believe that God is for us? I believe that a lot of people in here and a lot of people out there are trying to live their life trying to get God to be for them. And I want you to know the so what of this is God is for you. And if God is for you, one conclusion I can give you is that means if God is really for me in Christ, justified, not condemned, secure in his love for me both now and forever, I can give my life to trusting God. I can give all of my life, not just a section or a part of, I can give all of me and I can, I, I, God, I trust you because you are for me and you have demonstrated the ways that you are for me. God, I can trust you. It is really hard to give yourself to someone you don't trust. I would say it's next to impossible to give yourself to someone that you don't trust. Why would you? Because you don't know what they're going to do with you. But I can trust my life in the hands of God because I know God is for me. Now, you've heard me say this a few times today. This is applicable if you are a Christian. This is who Paul is talking to. This means Christians have unshakable confidence that I can give myself wholly to to God because God is for me. And he showed me different reasons and ways that God is for me. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'll be honest, this truth is not for you. This is applicable to a person who has confessed Jesus Christ as God's Son and as Savior. If I am standing apart from Christ, meaning I don't have a relationship with Christ, I am still standing as a sinner before a holy God. And I would be punished as, and justly punished as someone who has sinned against God, someone who has rebelled against God. If you want this truth to apply to you, to walk out of here with absolute confidence, knowing that God is for you, it begins, is sustained and finishes with knowing that you have a relationship with Christ. Christian, you have confidence that God's for you. If you're not a Christian, then make this confession today. God, I confess that I've sinned, rebelled against you, done my own thing. You have provided your son graciously, generously given your son. You didn't spare him. 
so that I would be spared. I would have relationship with you. I would be justified. I would not be condemned, and I would know your love, a love that I would never be separated from. As we get ready to worship and respond to God in communion, if you've made that decision to trust Christ, I want you to know God's for you. I just want you to sit with that. And hopefully in your sitting, considering, and, and pondering, there would be something in you that would just say, God, thank you. And as you worship, it would come out in how you worship God right now. And just gratitude that God is for you. And as you would come and celebrate communion and you cast your eyes on the cross, God, thank you for giving your son for me. And if you're not a Christian, please make this decision today so that you go out from here with absolute assurance that God is for you because you've placed your faith in Christ.